We're going to start our service by standing together. If you would stand with me this morning as we begin our service by singing Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. on my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed my chains are gone I've been set my God, my Savior, has ransomed me, and like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. The Lord has Please be seated. Today is our periodic observance of the Lord's Table, also known as Communion. And communion is one of the two ordinances that Christ gave to his church, the other being baptism. And we're going to observe the ordinance of baptism this evening at, at five o'clock. So what is an ordinance? An ordinance is a ceremony. It's a rite that we observe in obedience to what Christ has commanded. Now, there are some things that we all need to know about ordinances. 
First of all, they do not serve in any way to get you to heaven. In fact, as we'll see, the participants in these are those who are going to heaven and do not take part as a means to get there. We also need to understand that ordinances are memorials. They are symbols that remind us of the work of Jesus Christ. Now, who should participate? The Bible teaches these are for those who have trusted Christ as Savior. Now, if you don't know what that means, I would love an opportunity to explain that to you at a time of your convenience. So see me afterward or contact me this week. We'll set a time to get together. In the meantime, we're delighted that you're our guest and we encourage you to observe what happens today. For those that have trusted Christ as Savior, the Bible gives one other requirement for the Lord's table. And that is that we confess sin before we partake. Now, a bit later, we're going to take time to go to the Lord and we can use that opportunity to confess sin as needed. And it may be that we have some sin that we refuse to give up or something that the Lord has told us in his word to do that we are unwilling to obey. In either case, we should take that to the Lord. We should confess it. And he promises to forgive. Now, one matter that is too often overlooked as it relates to our worship on any Lord's Day, including Ordinance Sunday, is the matter of unresolved interpersonal conflict. Because an unwillingness to pursue that resolution interpersonally is a sin itself. And that's because Jesus said this, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So Jesus is saying if there's an issue between us and a brother or sister, we should take care of that before we participate in worship, including communion. If you're aware of Jesus' instructions and you have a conflict that you're just refusing to handle, then I encourage you not to participate and take care of that issue today. Now, if you've tried to reconcile, but the other party refuses, you're released from any biblical obligation. Jesus' command may be new to you. And if that's the case, take the matter to the Lord when we pray. Ask for his wisdom. Participate in communion. But address it with the individual this week, even this afternoon, because it's that important to God. And by the way, that interpersonal conflict issue includes in our homes. That includes spouses. If you're at odds with your spouse... And you're refusing to do what God says in order to reconcile that, then that's something that needs to be confessed and taken care of. Now, there's another matter about which the Lord has commanded us, and that's the issue of baptism. The Bible is clear that those who know Christ as Savior are to follow him in obedience in baptism. That is being immersed in water to symbolize his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So if you have been baptized some other way, You've actually not been baptized as God describes. In fact, it's not baptism unless it symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, if you're just struggling with what baptism is or you haven't had occasion to look into it, then if you have trusted Christ as Savior, we urge you to participate in communion today. But make it a point to see me about baptism so that we can see if you're a candidate for it at our next opportunity. But if you have looked into it and you're just refusing then that's a sin that needs to be confessed. You can do that this morning and then follow up and get with me and then we can go from there. So who should participate? It's those who know Christ as Savior and have confessed known sin in their lives. And finally, should children participate? Well, the requirements are the same for our children. They need to know Christ as Savior and they need to be willing to be baptized. There's no prescribed age for either communion or baptism in the Bible, and so we leave it to parents to decide if their children should participate. All right, guys, if you'll come forward then, we are going to receive our weekly offering now at the beginning of our service. We do that on our ordinance Sundays. Normally, this is a little bit later in the service. So those of you that normally bring your giving uh, for the Lord's work uh, here on Sunday, this is the opportunity to give that. Those of you who are guests, don't feel obligated. Just pass that basket to the person next to you. I should note that on Ordinance Sunday, we pass the hat twice. Uh, once at the beginning and then again at the end of our service, we have what's called a benevolence offering. The funds of that go to help folks as needs arise within our church. So just be aware of that. 
All right, we're going to pray now and perhaps take this opportunity to to confess any known sin to the Lord. Let's pray. God the Father, we thank you for sending God the Son, Jesus, to die for our sin. Because of his offering of himself for us, we delight to offer ourselves to you in gratitude. Thank you for allowing us the privilege of being your children and being able to set aside this time to remember Christ's sacrifice for us. Lord, we readily confess that we are sinners in general and that each of us struggles with certain sins in particular. We pray that you'll be pleased as we remember with profoundly thankful hearts the death of Jesus on our behalf and that we'll be motivated to recommit ourselves to the service of the one who alone is worthy. We ask you to accept these gifts as a sacrifice of worship and help us to use these funds wisely and as a means to spread your fame. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As God's Word tells us about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, it tells us that as He hung upon the cross, Scripture says He bowed His head and He gave up His spirit. But He said something vitally important just before He took His last breath. Because that verse says this, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Just before Jesus died, he uttered a word in Greek that's translated in our English Bibles, it is finished. That Greek word is tetelestai. And that word tetelestai was a word that was used in New Testament times written on business documents or on receipts indicating that a bill had been paid in full. In fact, one Greek-English dictionary says this, receipts are often presented with the word tetelestai, usually written in an abbreviated manner. And so the connection between receipts and what Christ accomplished would have been quite clear to the original readers of the Gospel of John. It would have been unmistakable to them that Jesus Christ had died to pay for their sins in full. This word tetelestai is written in the Greek perfect tense. 
That means that the results are ongoing and with full effect. In other words, Jesus is saying it's fully and completely finished. And it will always be fully and completely finished. But it is the case that we often fail to live in the light of that amazing truth. One author has said this, It is finished revolutionizes the way I relate to God. It transforms the way I think about holiness and putting sin to death. It reweaves the fabric of how I live each day. It is finished truly does change everything, but there's a problem. I don't usually live like it's finished. I live as if Jesus cried out, it's mostly done. As if I need to add just a little bit to the finished work of Jesus. Or I live as if the hymn says, Jesus paid it some. I must do the rest. As a result, I don't experience the overwhelming explosive joy that accompanies truly knowing and believing that it is finished. On the contrary, I carry a great weight around. Because after all, if it's not totally finished, we've got serious work to do. This morning, as we observe the Lord's table, remembering his death on our behalf, we're going to look at some of the implications of the fact that, in fact, it is finished. First of all, Christ's completed work means that nothing can be added. Now, there are lots of ways to add to the work of Christ, all of them wrong, and in fact, all of them detracting from the simplicity and the beauty of the good news that is the gospel. I'm going to briefly mention some ways that false teaching adds to the work of Christ so that we will be instructed and warned. And instructing and warning is something that the Bible says pastors are supposed to do for their flocks. And so I do it because the Bible says that I'm to do that. Not to be offensive or unkind, but I say it because these matters are of eternal importance. Roman Catholicism teaches that the death of Christ is something that must be repeated. And it is so every time the Mass is offered. Let me read for you the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church on this important matter. Quote, in the Mass is contained in an unbloody manner the same Christ who once offered himself in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross. This sacrifice of the Mass is truly propitiatory. That is, it satisfies God by covering our sins. For... Appeased by this sacrifice of the Mass, the Lord grants the grace and gift of penitence and pardons even the gravest crimes and sins. For the victim in the Mass is one and the same. The same now offering by the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross. The manner alone of offering being different. It is rightly offered, is the Mass, not only for the sins, punishments, satisfactions, and other necessities of the faithful who are living, but also for those who are departed in Christ, but not as yet fully purified. So Jesus says it is finished. And yet, Christ is being re-crucified every time the Mass is offered. Every single time. And that's because it's believed that the death of Jesus on the cross did not fully provide satisfaction for our sins, past, present, and future. And so it must be reenacted every week to cover sins committed since the last time one participated in Mass. And so within Roman Catholicism, just up until recently, this is slightly changed, but just up until recently, if one, for example, committed suicide, they could not have any hope of even purgatory, let alone heaven, because they would have a what's called a mortal sin on their account that was not covered by participating in Mass. Now, to be fair, this kind of thing happens in other churches as well. The Pentecostal church that I grew up in had what we called an altar call at the end of every service. And so the front of the church was considered an altar, and you know what happens on an altar. What's offered on an altar? Sacrifice. It's one of the reasons I've told you over the years, we never call up front here the altar. The closest we have to an altar in our church or anything signifying a sacrifice is the cross that's hanging behind me. 
We don't offer sacrifice here. And the reason we don't offer sacrifice is because Christ has given his sacrifice for us. But we used to have, as I was a kid, the altar call. and We would go to the, the altar and we would, as it was said, have our sins placed under the blood. And you would do that week after week. And as a young person, the sins I had committed from the prior week, I would put under the blood as I went to the altar. But the good news is this, friends, the gospel, the good news is that our sins are all under the blood. Because Christ's death is done, the Bible says, once for all. Hebrews chapter 9 says this explicitly. I've asked Brother Tim Robinson to read for us. For Christ did not enter the sanctuary made of human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Now notice the language used by the author of Hebrews. He didn't enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, did. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times. But he has appeared Once for all. And he offered himself once. And that's why when Jesus made this sacrifice, he could say, it is complete. It is finished. Jesus' death on the cross was done and it was needed only one time. And in it, then, our sins are paid in full. The Bible teaches us that all our sins are forgiven because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Colossians chapter 2 tells us as much. I've asked Brother Wes Dale to read for us. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. He forgave us. Notice how many sins in the passage West read. He forgave us all our sins. And this is true not only after the cross of Jesus, But in fact, the sacrifices made in the first part of your Bible, what we call the Old Testament, anticipated a full payment one day by a perfect sacrifice that would not need to be repeated as priests did day in and day out and year in and year out. And that's why in Psalm number 32, David could speak of this full forgiveness. And that's why what David said in Psalm number 32 is quoted in the New Testament in Romans chapter 4. I've asked Brother Kevin Seavers. To read for us. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin and the Lord will never count against them. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sins are covered. And the Lord will never count those against him. Thanks be to God. And so we're now going to sing of this blessed truth that our sins are paid for, friends, in full. And church, I encourage you to sing with praise and thanksgiving. When we sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Let's stand together as we sing.
like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea
So Christ's completed work means that nothing can be added. It was once for all. And our sins are paid in full. And it further means that the righteousness we have because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is a perfect righteousness. When asked what Jesus has done for us, most of us will rightly say he died for our sins. And that is certainly true. But his work is more than merely dying. I sometimes ask, as folks join our church, we have on the one-page application that you fill out that question, what has Christ done for us? Most of the time, folks answer, as I said, that he died for our sins, which is perfect and, and right and good, but just not complete. And I ask the question, I say, you know, he did more than that. And have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus died on the cross at around the age of 33? And have you ever considered why it was he waited to die? I mean, if all he came to do was die, he could have just gotten it over with. He could have died at the age of 6 or 10. But in fact, he came to do more than die. He actually came to live first. And the living was indeed, yes, for his teaching and for his healing and to prove that he was the Messiah. It was that, but it was... Yet even more than that, because he had to live and experience the temptations of life. And in the midst of all that we suffer, according to Hebrews chapter four and verse 15, he has been tempted in all points like we are yet without sin. In the midst of all of it, not only did he not sin, but he lived an absolutely perfect life of righteousness. And that perfect life of righteousness throughout his life was necessary for a couple of things. It was necessary in order for the sacrifice on the cross to be acceptable to God the Father. It's a perfect now sacrifice. The sacrifice of one who has accomplished all that God had said at the very outset of human history. This is what you're to do. And here's my law and you keep it. Do this and you will live. But no one did until Jesus He lived a perfectly righteous life, and therefore his sacrifice on the cross was acceptable to God the Father. But there's a second thing that his righteous life does. It is the righteousness that we all need to have applied to us in order for us to be acceptable to God. You see, it's not just or merely that Jesus died and covered our sins with his death on the cross, past, present, and future. In addition to that, His life is given to you when you come to Him believing who He is and what He has done. For me, that was at the age of 19. And when at the age of 19, I recognized and acknowledged my sin and that Jesus is the only payment and the only answer for my sin, I asked Him to apply His work to me personally. And in that sacred moment, both the benefit of His death on the cross and the forgiveness of sins, past, present, future, that comes with it, is given to me, but also the benefit of his perfectly righteous life was given to me, both. So my theology professor used to ask this trick question that I've used on you a number of times over the years, do you have to be good to go to heaven? And we know that going to heaven is not a matter of our own works, so we would say in seminary, or you guys would you know, say, no, you don't have to be good. If you had to be good, nobody goes. But in fact, you have to be perfect. In Matthew 5.48, Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, where are you going to get this perfection? You get that perfection from the perfect life of Jesus. And the perfectly righteous life that he lived that's applied to you at the moment you come to him believing who he is and what he has done. Christ's death means our sins are covered. But that does not give us the righteousness that we need. Our sins being covered just brings us back, as it were, to kind of a neutral ground before God. We need this positive righteousness that only comes by Him in order for us to be able to ever stand in the presence of God. So it's right, friends, to say this. Jesus died for me. But it's right 
and necessary as well to say, Jesus lived for me. The Apostle Paul wrote of this in Philippians chapter 3. I've asked Brother Luke Andrews to read for us. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Notice the phrases in what Luke read. Not having a righteousness of my own, but in contrast to a righteousness of my own, the righteousness that comes from God. That's the righteousness of Jesus that comes when we believe on the basis of faith. And when, as Luke read there, when Paul said, I've lost all things and I consider them, he says, garbage. If you read earlier in that chapter, Philippians chapter 3, you see the things that he considers of, of no worth. And he gives a spiritual resume. And if anyone ever had a marvelous spiritual resume, it was the Apostle Paul. But he says, all of those things are worthless as it pertains to me having a relationship with God and having the righteousness that I need to stand before him that only comes, not by my own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This, friends, is what we call justification. Many of you have heard that term. It's a term that the Bible uses. Sometimes we define that quickly as just as if I'd never sinned. So if you want to remember the word justified, just say just as if I'd never sinned. And that's good as far as it goes. But remember, it's not just that I haven't sinned. It's that God looks at me not only that way because of Jesus, but that I've actually lived a perfect life. (laughs) What a beautiful thing. God looks at me through the righteousness of Jesus. God, the righteous judge, Declares the guilty, me, you, to be righteous. That's why we sing, as we will now, complete in thee. Let's stand together as we do. Tribes and tongues assemble. 
humbled are among thy chosen will I be at thy right hand completely yea justify no blessed thought and sanctified salvation wrought thy blood hath pardoned bought for me and glorified I too shall be. Amen. You may be seated. Christ's completed work means nothing can be added to it. And it means a second thing. It is the means by which God's glory is achieved. You see, God has determined that he and only he will receive the glory for all that he does in his world. Certainly including the provision of our salvation. God is not going to share the credit for that with anyone. And that's why it's completely about work that's done outside of you, outside of me, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God says very clearly in his word that he will not allow anyone else to share in his praise. Through the prophet Isaiah, he said, I will not yield my glory to another. That's why the salvation plan that God devised and carried out had to be as it was. In order for God to receive the exclusive glory. That passage or that incident that I mentioned earlier when I was 19 and I came to Christ. I told you the story of being in my bedroom. And having grown up in church and memorized lots of verses and learned a lot of the Bible stories. But I had never been made alive spiritually by the grace of God. And I was in my bedroom and I was reading the Bible. And I was reading a passage that I had memorized and I had read many times. But in this sacred moment, God turned the light on for me. And here's the passage, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. And it's not by works. Now, many of us know that. But we sometimes skip over the importance of the last phrase. You see why all of that is true? You see why it must be a gift of grace? The it being even the faith, the ability to believe, must come from God. Not by anything we do, not by works. Here's why. Here's the purpose. So that no one can boast. And so God has so designed the plan of salvation That only he gets the glory, only he gets the praise, only he gets the credit. And if there's anything that we do to add to it, then it detracts from the glory of God and he will have none of it. That's the reason that Christ's work is completed. And it means that God's glory then through that is achieved because our salvation is this way and only this way. It is by faith. And the word faith in your New Testament, I've told you many times, is believe. You don't do anything. You believe something that's been done. And thereby, the one who did it gets the glory. The Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible explicitly says this, that it has to be by faith. Notice, it is by faith so that it may be by grace. The implication there is if it's any other way, then it can't be by the grace of God. And if it's not by the grace of God, the free gift of God that's undeserved and unearned and even unwanted before you come to if it's not that way, then God is not going to receive the glory that he deserves. It's got to be by grace because God is determined to receive the glory. So our salvation is by faith, by believing in someone else and what they've done, and it is necessarily then apart from works. The Bible, again, is explicit. A person is justified by faith apart from works 
of the law. Now, when you read that last three words, works of the law, what some people do is they say, okay, you can't be justified. I defined that earlier, declared righteous before God through doing works of the law. But then what they do inexplicably and really illogically, certainly unbiblically, is to say, well, it's not by works of the law, but that doesn't mean it's not by any works. It's just not by works of the law. I say it's illogical for this reason. (laughs) You know, the works of the law were God's list of rules. You think anybody can improve on that list? See, forgive the grammar, but ain't nobody improving on God's list. God gave a perfect list that nobody kept. So now we deign to think that there's going to be some other list of rules that people are going to be able to keep sufficiently enough in order to recommend themselves to God. Nothing doing. And so it's not just works of the law. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it's not by works, period. Further, the Bible goes on to make that absolutely clear in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, I've asked Brother Jim Lancaster to read for us. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. God justifies people who are not righteous. He justifies the ungodly. And those who work are able to stand before God and say, you now have an obligation to me. That's what the Bible's saying. And God's saying, no one's going to boast before me. No one's going to stand before me and say, you owe me, God, something because of what I did. The idea, as I said, that one could improve on God's list is foolish. In fact, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21 says that if righteousness could have come by Law, by a law, certainly it would have come by the law. If righteousness before God could have come by any list of rules, it certainly would have come by the list of rules that he gave. And what's interesting about the context of what Brother Jim just read is this. Just in the verses just before what he read, Paul, who wrote that, proves his point by using Abraham as his illustration. And he does that in order to exclude this idea that, okay, we can't be justified before God by works of the law, but we can still be justified before God by some works, some works that are not of the law. God will have none of it. Paul will have none of it. And he makes that clear by using Abraham as the illustration. Here's what he says in the verses just before what Jim read. If Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Abraham had faith in the promise of God. And it, what he believed, was credited to him as a righteousness. Now, here's why Abraham's important. Do you remember through whom the law came? The law came through Moses. But Abraham lived 500 years before Moses. And so Paul explicitly uses one who came before the law to say it was not by works with Abraham. It was not by works through Moses, and it has never been by works for anyone. But thanks be to God, Jesus has done the work that we could not do. And we're going to sing of that on Christ, the solid rock I stand. Let's stand together as we do. on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name.
Christ alone, cornerstone, weak and made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of Darkness seems to hide his face. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. My anchor holds within the veil. Alone, cornerstone, weak and made strong in the Savior's love through the storm. He is Lord, Lord of all. When He shall come. Trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Christ alone, cornerstone. In the Savior's love, through the storm, He is Lord, Christ alone, cornerstone, weak and made strong. In the Savior's love, through the storm. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Brother John Roberts, one of our deacons and our leadership team, is going to lead us in prayer, thanking the Lord for his broken body on our behalf. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus. We come before you in humility, and we ask that you examine our hearts today. Show us anything that is not pleasing to you. Reveal to us any unconfessed sin, anything that could be hindering our relationship with you. Lord, I know I'm your beloved child, having received you into my heart and into my life, having accepted your death as penalty for my sinfulness. The price you paid covered me for all time, and my desire is to live for you. May that be the same for each and every one of us here today. As we take this bread representing your life that was broken for us, we remember and celebrate your faithfulness to us and to all who received you. I can't imagine the agonizing suffering of your crucifixion, yet you took that pain for me. For us. Lord, you died for me. For us here. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your love, for your unmerited favor. Thank you that your death gave me life, abundant now and eternal forever. So as we receive this bread, 
May we do this as we've been instructed by you, in remembrance of you. Amen. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. One of our pastoral staff, Bill Combs, will lead us in prayer, thanking the Lord Jesus for his shed blood on our behalf. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to remember the person and work of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. As we partake of these elements, we remember the saving benefits of the life and death of our Savior. By partaking of this cup, we are proclaiming our belief that Jesus shed his blood for sinners like us. We thank you for his sacrificial death that brought us out of darkness into the light of the gospel of the grace of God. And we look forward to that glorious day when he comes again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The Lord Jesus' words on the night before he was betrayed connect what would happen the next day with the future. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we want to have a forward look as we remember the Lord's death And the Apostle Peter tells us of that, that this salvation that was secured for us by Christ in his perfect life and in his death upon the cross is kept then for us by the power of God. First Peter chapter one, I've asked Brother Ron Biggs to read for us. Praise be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and from an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed 
in the last time. We have in our final moments of our service some things uh, to take care of, uh, including that offering that I mentioned to you at the beginning. So we'll do that in uh, just a moment. And also, I'm going to run through as quickly as I can some of the things that are coming up. We have some folks that are joining our church as well. So I want to try to handle those all within the approximately five minutes that we, we have left. So guys, if you're going to be taking the offering, if you guys will get ready for that, and you had a program that you should have received on your way in, that program lists a number of things that are coming up in the life of our church. So I encourage you to make note of those. One in particular to make note of is in just a few weeks, we have our annual Ladies' Christmas Fellowship. That's on Friday night, the 6th. And for that, we set up tables in this room and we need 27 total uh, hosts for each of those tables, one for each table. And so far, I'm told we have 24. So we need three more, and three more uh, volunteering today would be of uh, great help because next week there's uh, going to be a meeting, an informational meeting for those who have volunteered uh, to be a table host. So if you've been thinking about that, we need three more. You can let Marcy Hunter know about that. And if you don't know who Marcy is and you don't know how to chase her down in the crowd, Marcy, if it's okay with you, stand by the uh, Welcome Center desk during our refreshment time if you're able. And if you'll go there, Marcy will be there, and you can let her know that uh, that you uh, are willing to be a, a table host. And then the other things I think are self-explanatory. The other only other one I want to point out is that we have our newcomers orientation for those that are new to our church. It's a we're going to be doing that over a three-week period on Sundays during our second hour, December 1, 8, and 15. So please make note of that. I teach that class to give you information about who we are so that you can make an intelligent decision about uh, joining our church if that's what the Lord would have you to do. So those of you that have been guests here for a while, please make note of that. Let's stand together now for our closing song. Justice has been satisfied. 